0: Thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm going to Korea in about a fortnight myself, so not for a wedding, though. Um, so today's passage comes from Psalm 56. Uh, I don't know if you remember my sermon from April. It was a bit of a depressing sermon. Um, I'm not a depressed guy, but this is another depressive sermon, uh, just a disclaimer. Uh, but if you could turn with me to Psalm 56, um, of I think I've got a different translation to you guys. So I use um, the ESV, the English Standard Version. I think you guys used the NIV, if I'm correct. Um, so it might be a little bit different, uh, but just bear with me. So Psalm 56, the word of God reads, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps, as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's easy to be able to read uh, passages in Scripture that speak of victory and prosperity and success, Uh, But, Father, we pray in this moment that we wouldn't just gloss over, lament psalms like this, uh, but that we would take a moment to read the words of the psalmist as recorded in Scripture, to place ourselves in their shoes, to recognise that there are seasons in life when victory seems absent, when you seem silent, uh, and Father, we pray as we read today's passage in particular uh, that we would learn how to respond in moments like this when suffering appears, to learn how we can suffer well according to your word. We pray that you would be with us and that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, I don't know if you've heard of a preacher, a Romanian preacher by the name of Richard Wormbrandt. Uh, He was a Christian. Uh, He became a Christian in 1938, uh, and during World War II, he helped a lot of Jews who were trying to escape from the Nazi regime. And as you know, during this time, uh, a lot of Jews were being oppressed. They were being sent to concentration camps or slave labor camps, and Richard would help as many Jews as he could escape from being captured by the Nazis and he'd send them to other countries where they'd be able to find refuge. In addition to this type of work, Richard would then travel from bomb shelter to bomb shelter, preaching the gospel. And so whilst above the ground there'd be bombs and there'd be shelling of cities and explosions going off, Richard would be under the ground moving from bomb shelter to bomb shelter, preaching the good news to everyone and anyone that would listen. Now, after World War II came to an end, Uh, Richard's country uh, was ruled by a communist government and as Richard continued his work in ministry, uh, the government began a systematic persecution of Christians. They knew about Richard, they knew about his ministry work and they began threatening him. They told him, we're going to throw you in prison if you continue to preach the good news. Richard, however, was quite defiant and he chose to continue his ministry work, and sure enough, about a year later, uh, he was thrown in prison for preaching the gospel and defying government orders. When his fellow Christians, uh, his brothers and his sisters, when they found out about this, they began praying intensely for him. They prayed to God for his quick release, but this didn't happen. Richard would end up spending eight years in prison and would be released in about 1956. And upon his release, the government warned him again to stop in his ministry work, to stop preaching the gospel. And despite all their warnings, Richard went straight back into preaching the good news. He began making disciples again. And sure enough, he found himself in prison in 1959, just a short time later. And they sentenced him to 30 years. He would be eventually released on compassionate grounds after six And he would continue his work as a minister of the faith until the day he died. Now, what makes Richard's testimony so shocking wasn't so much his faithfulness, but it was the details that came to light about the torture and suffering that he had to endure. During this time, the prison guards would mutilate his body. They would cut his body with sharp objects. They would burn parts of his body with fire. They would throw him into a freezer at cold temperatures. And other times they would chain him and beat the bottom of his feet until the flesh of his soles tore open. And then they'd stop and beat him again so they were hitting the bone. And to make matters worse, when they weren't beating him, they would lock him away in solitary confinement. A tiny room with no windows, no lights, And even worse, no sound. It said that the guards in this part of the jail wouldn't even wear shoes because they wanted the prisoners to be deprived of every sense, including hearing. It was an environment of pitch darkness where you couldn't see anything, you couldn't hear anything, and it was designed to break prisoners down mentally and make them go insane. Now, during this time of solitary confinement, when he wasn't sleeping, Richard spent his time praying out loud and preaching the word to himself. And he did this, one, to remind himself of the promises of God, but another because he didn't want to lose his mind. This was one way he kept his sanity. And it's said that he preached so many sermons to himself, but by the time he came out of prison, he had about 300 sermons memorized word for word. Because of his faith, Richard endured immense suffering and despite the prayers of all his fellow christians god still allowed him to suffer immensely and violently at the hands of his government during this time richard experienced danger and fear at a level that we couldn't possibly begin to imagine for him suffering was very very real Now, in today's psalm, we see that just like Richard, King David, who is the author of this psalm, was in great danger, and he rightfully feared for his life. In distress, he takes his fear to God. He takes his pain to God in prayer through this psalm. But there's something peculiar about this passage, because despite his prayers, God doesn't remove the threat of danger from David. In fact, David's situation in terms of his circumstances doesn't change at all. The danger is still there. And yet, as we read through this Psalm, we'll find that David's trust and confidence in God somehow dissolves his fear away. And when reading a passage like this, I'm often left wondering, how is this possible? How do you get to this place when you're in a situation where you pray and you pray like David, where night and day you cry out unceasingly petitioning God, only for God to respond with nothing but silence? Where on earth are we to find the motivation and the confidence to continue trusting in God? Where are we meant to find courage and how are we meant to expect fear to dissolve away like this? And I think today's passage will help us answer these questions as we get to experience the heart of the psalmist. Now, the heading of today's psalm uh, will help us understand the context of the passage. And it reads, if you see the heading of that psalm, it says, To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off Terebinth, a mictum of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Uh, This is actually a reference to 1 Samuel 21. And if you read this passage, you will find that King David has fled from King Saul. Well, he's not King David isn't a king yet, but before he became a king, he fled from King Saul and he had to enter the Philistine city of Gath. Uh, He fled his home and he had to enter into the land of the enemy because his own king wanted him dead. And not only would King Saul have been pursuing him, but his soldiers would have been under strict orders to capture or kill him on sight. Imagine living in Sydney, knowing that the Prime Minister wanted you dead. And not only that, that the New South Wales police have been given orders to shoot you on sight. This was the kind of situation that David was in. Things weren't going well for him. His life is in genuine danger, and it's in this moment that he prays Psalm 56. And in this psalm, David describes the attacks of his enemies. He explains in verses 1, 2, and 5 that they were continual, unceasing, all day long. Verse 1 says, all day long an attacker oppresses me. Verse 2, my enemy tramples on me all day long. Verse 5, all day long they injure my cause or twist my words. And if you ever read through 1 Samuel, you'll find that King Saul was relentless in his obsession to kill David. And David cannot help but be afraid. David has every right to be afraid and he confesses this fear in verse 3. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And what's fascinating about his confession of fear in verse 3 is that this fear disappears in the next verse. Because verse 3 says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Verse 4 says, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Verse 3, I'm afraid. Verse 4, I'm not afraid. As he places his confidence in God. In fact, he even goes as far as to say, not that he's not afraid anymore, but you know, he says, what can man do to me? What can flesh do to me? And like I mentioned earlier, this is fascinating because whilst David's fear might have dissolved away, the danger is still ever present. Saul still wants him dead. Soldiers are out hunting him down like an animal, as a fugitive. David still has a bounty on his head. And we know this because in verse 4, Even though he says he's not afraid. Verses 5 to 7 says all day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape in wrath? Cast down the peoples, O God. The NIV says that David, you know, David says that people are twisting his words. They're conspiring against him. They're waiting for him to make a mistake, to show his face so that they can end his life. David is still in grave danger. And he's prayed and he's prayed and he's prayed and God hasn't responded yet. He's petitioned for God to help him and help hasn't come. And yet, despite this, what does David do? He continues to pray. And he continues to reflect upon what he knows of God. For instance, in verse 8, reflecting upon God, he says that he knows that God keeps a record of everything. He knows that God is aware of his anguish. In verse 9, he says that he knows that justice will ultimately prevail. Why? Because we worship and we follow a just God. Despite having received nothing but silence from God, David continues to look to God as the object of his faith and his hope. Despite the danger, despite what seems like ongoing silence from God, he continues to trust and keep God as the centre and the object of his faith and hope, so much so that this psalm reaches a climax. In verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11 read, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? He repeats that phrase, doesn't he? In verses 10 and 11 where he repeats this, it's like a more longer comprehensive version of verse 4 where he said it the first time. Because you remember in verse 4, he asked that rhetorical question. What can man do to me? And I say it's a rhetorical question because when we read this question, what can man do to me? The heart cry of every true believer that we anticipate in response to a question like this, what can man do to me, is Nothing. If I have God on my side, there is nothing that man can do to me. I stand with an eternal God. I am a subject and servant of the risen king who conquered death. What can man do to me? Nothing. That's the heart cry, isn't it? But you know what? We should be careful before we jump the gun and give a response like that. Because even though our hearts might be stirred to give that kind of a response, the reality, and I'm sure David was aware of this, is that actually man can do a lot to you. In fact, Richard Wurmbrand, whom I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, if you asked him before he died, what can man do to me? He would have pointed to his scarred and mutilated body. And he would have said, man can do a lot to you. Man has done terrible things to me. And he can do a lot worse. Despite all the bravado that we might be able to muster, this question, what can man do to me? It really does point to a sobering reality, doesn't it? And in light of this, The question that we asked earlier, or I asked earlier, it has to be asked again. If man can do a lot to me, how then do I trust God and not be afraid? We saw in the Psalms that for David, despite silence from God in response to prayer, the fear that David had, it began to dissolve away. And it gave way to hope and courage. Even though the danger was still there, nothing had changed circumstantially. And so we're left wondering, how is this possible? And more importantly, how do I make this a reality in my own life? And I'd like to make a few observations from today's passage that I hope will help us at least in part answer this. And the first observation or application point I'd like to make is that we need to learn to rest in the promises of God. Verses 3 and 4, I'll read it again to you. It says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? David mentions his trust in God in verse 3. And in the middle of verse 4, he talks about trust. But what's sandwiched in between these two mentions of trust is his praise of God's word. Let me read it again. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God's word. For in God, whose word I praise, In God, I trust. In other words, our ability to trust in God begins when we draw an assurance and a confidence from His Word. This means that as followers of Jesus, in order to have a righteous response to fear, in order to respond to fear in the right way, we have to be familiarizing ourselves with the scriptures to examine the promises of God and make it a practice learning to rest upon them. There is one famous Puritan author who's quoted to have said, and I uh, quote, he said, every time a believer reads the scriptures and finds a promise from God, he ought to lay his hand upon it and say, this is part of my inheritance. It is mine and I am to live upon it. For the follower of Jesus in the 21st century, we would do well to heed this kind of advice. Because for us, in the 21st century, I think we have a tendency to define and gauge our faith based on our feelings and our emotions, don't we? We almost measure our faith based on how we feel But the problem with that is that it undermines our relationship with God. We have a tendency to think that if it's not joy, overflowing joy pouring out of our hearts, then we must be spiritually broken or spiritually bankrupt. And certainly our faith does guide our feelings and emotions, but how we feel should not and cannot be the measure of our faith. Just because you don't feel joy doesn't mean that your faith has been shipwrecked. If you look at today's psalm and plenty of other lament psalms in the scriptures, you'll find countless instances where David and the author of the psalms, or that particular lament psalm, uh, they're feeling anything but joy. If you read through the book of Job, who in terms of his faith, God himself describes Job as upright, and blameless, that there's none on the earth like Job. And yet, if you read through all 42 chapters of Job, you will find a guy who has been robbed of all his joy. Feelings and emotions are not the true measure of faith. And if you consider joyful emotions as the true measure of faith, you will actually end up shipwrecking your faith, because you'll try to remedy and rectify the situation, by looking for an emotional-based solution. You'll try to recreate the atmosphere that once caused that stirring in your heart. But we're not called to do that. Instead, we're called to do what the psalmist did. What Christians are called to do is to take hold of and rest in the promises of God This is what dissolved David's fear away. Let me read verses 3 and 4 again to you. It says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We need to be a people that learn and make a practice of resting in the promises of God. Second observation or application prayer will help us suffer well. When we see God's answer to prayer in the Psalms and even in our everyday lives, the reality is that often the problems are still there. They still remain ever present even when we finish praying. In today's Psalm, we see that David, like who prays like David? Yet for a man like David, he prayed and he prayed fervently in the midst of danger and suffering And yet at the end of the psalm, David is still in danger. He's still suffering. King Saul is still very much alive and still very much intent on killing him. When um, Richard Wembrand went to prison, the churches, every church that he was affiliated with, uh, they prayed a lot for him, unceasingly for him. His wife prayed unceasingly for him, and undoubtedly Richard would have prayed unceasingly for himself. And yet, kind of like David, the outcome was that he still suffered. He had to endure years, not like days or weeks, years of jail and horrifying, endless physical torture. And when you look to something like that, when you look to a psalm like today's, you're left wondering, if you're like me, you're left scratching your head, wondering if that's often the reality of life. That despite how much you pray, your situation doesn't change. Then what's the point of praying? What's the point of praying and persevering in prayer if your circumstances are not going to change? The truth, though, is that something does change. Because when we pray in the midst of suffering, even though, kind of like with David, it might feel like God is responding with silence, God is still responding. Not so much to change our circumstances, but to change and shape ourselves. Many times the answer from God isn't going to be to fix a situation or to remove the problem. But most of the time, the answer from God is going to be to shape you so that you can learn to suffer well. Because that's what we see in David, isn't it, in today's passage. We don't see a change in his circumstances. At the end of his prayer, Saul is still out to kill him. And yet we see an unexplainable change in David because his fear is gone. His heart is filled no longer with lament and anguish, but with hope and with courage because he's learned to rest in the promises of God. And even though it felt like God was silent, God was shaping him behind the scenes so that he could be a worshipper that learns to suffer well through prayer. If you meditate on today's psalm or even other psalms of lament, uh, often you'll find that they don't actually teach you how to fix suffering when it appears. If you read through the book of Job, which is meant to be the book of suffering, you never even find out a reason for suffering. But instead what the scriptures do teach us is how to suffer well when danger comes. How to trust in God, to worship and continue worshipping in him when we're paralysed with fear. Prayer helps us suffer well. Third point, by suffering well, we help other people see God In verse 13, David concludes his prayer by saying, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Now when you read this verse, it kind of sounds like God has rescued David from Saul. But we've already established that that's not the case. Saul is still alive. Saul is still out to kill David. Nothing has actually changed. But what I believe David is referring to in verse 13 when he speaks of deliverance is that God has rescued David not from Saul, but from being a prisoner of his own fear. Fear has the ability to paralyze any individual from living out their life and walking with God. But God does not leave his people to be paralysed by fear, does he? The Apostle John says in 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And it's because of what Christ has accomplished through the gospel that despite Satan's best efforts, suffering will only serve to strengthen the faith of Christians. Because we realize through the person and work of Jesus that fear and suffering do not have the final say in our lives. Despite what life throws at us, or as David asked in his psalm, what can man do to us? You know, we, we know that man can do a lot. But because of the gospel, we know that behind even the most powerful adversary that we can encounter in this world, there stands behind this adversary an even more powerful and mighty Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. A Savior who doesn't let the faith of his people be destroyed by suffering, but he's reversed it and turned it on his head so that for Christians, when we encounter pain and suffering, we're not destroyed by it, but we're strengthened tenfold by our suffering so that we are able to suffer well. And I think this is important to remember because if you ever if you ever go to seminary or you do a Christian history subject or if you, even if you go to Kurong and you buy a book on Christian history, one thing you'll find is that throughout Christian history, the kingdom of God has made the greatest advancements. It's made the most progress when we faced the most opposition. The craziest things have happened in the kingdom of God when he was dumped with immense pain and suffering. Richard Wembrandt spent a total of 14 years in prison all up because of his Christian faith. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, during that time, he experienced immense pain and torture. A crazy amount of pain. And as his jail sentence came to an end, there was a particular guard that walked past his cell and they shone a light into his cell and this guard saw him praying. And this frustrated the guard because he felt pity for Richard. Because every time the guards would catch him praying, they would beat him. Every time they heard him preaching to himself, they would beat him even more severely. And so out of frustration and a mix of pity as well, this guard opens the cell door, grabs Richard and pulls him to his feet and he shakes Richard and he says to him, Are you you, you crazy? What are you doing? Don't you know what the guards are going to do to you if they see you praying? Why are you praying? You've been in here for 14 years. If you've been praying for your release, God hasn't answered you. Look at the scars on your body. You think God's going to hear you. What do you possibly have left to pray about? And Richard dusted himself off, dusted himself off, and he looked at this card. He said, I'm not praying for myself, I'm praying for you. I'm praying so that you can see this Jesus that I worship, that you can see despite all the suffering, all the pain I've endured, that it is all worth it because of this risen king. Richard spent 14 years, 14 years living in the midst of physical darkness and undoubtedly spiritual darkness, but in suffering well. Richard became a beacon of hope to other prisoners and other prison guards. He kept himself sane by preaching the gospel to himself in the darkness, in reminding himself of the promises of God. He never, ever stopped praying despite the torture. And by suffering well, he led countless people to Christ during his time in prison, even the guards who tortured him. He really was the embodiment of the three observations that we made today. Number one, we need to be a people that learn to rest in the promises of God. Number two, that prayer helps us suffer well. And number three, by suffering well, we can help other people see God. Make no pretense. Suffering isn't easy. But I hope together we can continue to meditate upon the Psalms, especially Psalms like this. And for FLM, I hope that you could, you learn to pray together to God to strengthen each and every one of like your brothers and sisters when you see them suffering, that you can pray for them so that they can endure suffering and learn to suffer well. And not just allow suffering, end with suffering, but by suffering well, that we can show the world, what we have in Jesus. Now, um, I'd like to enter into a pre- time of prayer for all of us at the moment. Um, you know, learning to suffer well isn't easy. It's not something that comes naturally to anyone. Uh, but as we learned in today's passage, it is prayer that God uses to help shape us so that we can suffer well. Uh, so, in this moment, uh, I encourage everyone uh, to lay your petitions before God. Uh, I don't know whether you're hurting at the moment or if you're drowning in anxieties. Or maybe you're just wanting to learn how to find peace by resting in the promises of God. Uh, I encourage you to take advantage of this moment to ask these things of our God. And not just for yourself, but also pray for each other. Uh, Maybe you're not suffering. Maybe things are going well for you. Uh, Maybe you're exactly where you need to be spiritually. If that's the case, then praise God uh, and use this time to pray for those around you, uh, brothers and sisters in FLM that might not be so fortunate. As we saw today in this psalm, um, even if God does respond in silence, we do have a guarantee that he is still working for his people. Even if our circumstances aren't changing he is a living God that is continuing to shape our hearts through prayer. So let's go to the Lord and pray in this moment. Uh, we'll pray for a minute or so and then I'll wrap up. Let's pray. Father, suffering is never easy. It can have the potential to dismantle the faith of even the strongest believer. So Lord, I pray for this FLM congregation uh, that we would pray for each other, that we would make it a pattern to rest in the promises of God to read the scriptures to see the promises that you give us through the gospel as the Puritan author said that we would be able to rest our hand upon it and be able to claim these promises as our own not as a maybe but as a guarantee from the risen Lord Jesus Father we pray that even in dire circumstances even if it feels like that you're responding with nothing but silence through the scriptures, that we would know that you are continuing to work behind the scenes, that you are not ignorant to our prayers, but that you are responding it in accordance to your timing, in accordance to your ways which are higher than our ways. Help us, Lord, to learn how to suffer well. And Father, in suffering well, we pray that the world would be able to look to our response to trials, tribulations and adversity and be able to see the treasure that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.